On today's episode, Sexual Assault Training for Judges, Bill C-337, featuring an interview with sexual assault survivor advocate, Kristen Raworth. Welcome to Exclusion, a podcast that explores all things equity, diversity, and inclusion in the workplace. Exclusion is brought to you by Canadian Equality Consulting and Biard Consulting. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our podcast today. We are going to be talking about a little heavier subject matter. And before we begin, we want to make sure our listeners are aware that today's talk will include topics such as sexual assault. Ethics of care is important, and we are aware that these topics can cause emotional triggers in some. We ask that if this does happen, to please administer self-care. It is important that we look after ourselves, especially when discussing sensitive topics. Before we begin, in the spirit of respect, reciprocity, and truth... We acknowledge that this podcast is being recorded on the traditional territories and oral practices of the Treaty 7 region in Southern Alberta and Region 3 Métis Nation. We acknowledge all nations, Indigenous and non, who live, work, and play on these lands, and to all who assist in their stewardship and generations to come. So let's just jump right in here to our topic for today. Um which is uh, sexual assault training for federal court judges, um, the recent uh, bill, and featuring an interview with sexual assault survivor advocate Kristen Raworth. So Bill 337 was introduced as a private member's bill by the Honorable Rona Ambrose in February 2017 and was passed unanimously by the House of Commons three months later. So it's rare for a private member's bill to get passed because that's um, the type of bills that the opposition proposes. So it's really rare for them to get passed. But in this case, it was very successful and it was unanimously passed by the House with, with all parties supporting it. And this bill would have amended the Judges Act to, one, restrict eligibility for judicial appointment to individuals who have completed education in sexual assault law and social context, You know, that doesn't seem too unreasonable. Uh, Two, require that Canadian Judicial Council, require the Canadian Judicial Council to report on continuing education seminars in matters related to sexual assault law. And three, to amend the criminal code to require that reasons provided by a judge in sexual assault decisions be entered into the record of proceedings or be in writing. So, you know, none of that is too mind-blowing. No, it's uh, not like yeah. out in left field anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty, it seems pretty very reasonable and surprising that it's not already done, right? So it was unanimously passed by the House of Commons in uh, May 2017 and has then been stalled in the Senate for over two years. And now it has died. Yes, sadly. All right. Yeah. Okay, now why is this important? Well, it's important because... Only one in 10 victims of sexual assault report to the police because they fear that they won't get fair treatment. And last month, so May 2019, because we're recording this in June, uh, there was a ruling by the Canadian Supreme Court 
in the Cindy Gladue case demonstrated, and it demonstrates um, why we need this bill. The Supreme Court ordered a new trial for Bradley Barton, the truck driver that was acquitted for killing Gladue. The Supreme Court had ruled that the justice system failed Gladue by allowing her sexual history to become an issue. She was, And it was explained at the court uh, what her past was, uh, her sexual history and her identity, as she was an Indigenous woman and a sex worker. The Supreme Court even suggested that trial judges need to do more to counter justice against Indigenous women. And in February 2019, Justice Fred Kavach of the Saskatchewan Court of Queen's Bench permitted a defense lawyer to ask a sexual assault complainant why she did not fight back and why she did not report right away. So very much a the onus being put on the victim in these situations. And he also permitted um, the uh, the lawyer to ask questions about the woman's style of scream as that pertains to yeah. the act that happened yeah. to her. So a 48-year-old Regina woman had testified that what started as a coffee date with a charming gentleman ended with him driving her outside city limits and raping her nearly three years ago. And, oh my goodness, am I going to be able to say this name? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Julian Kadima, 49, was charged with sexual assault causing bodily harm. The sexual assault nurse examiner, Stephanie Carlson, told the judge that she had conducted more than 600 rape exams. Isn't that sad that that's your... Yeah. Um, the sheer day-to-day uh, job. And only once before had she seen an external anal injury as large as the one found on this woman. And yet the police officer who attended at the hospital decided not to take her statement back to the station that evening because it was late and it was snowing. Well, it's always snowing in Saskatchewan, so... <laughs> and always cold. Yeah. Not really an excuse not to do your job. Um, so this victim gave um, a videotaped statement to the RCP, RCMP at White Butte Detachment after the officer was back on shift. So this person had to then go to the officer to make her statement as opposed to doing it in the hospital at mm-hmm. the time. And delayed it further and talk about not trauma-informed at all. No, or re- re- reliving your trauma, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And in 2017, a cab driver in the city of Halifax, Nova Scotia, was acquitted of sexually acquitted of sexually assaulting a severely intoxicated passenger who was found unconscious. The judge was Judge Gregory Lenahan, and we're we're making sure to say all the names of these judges um, over the podcast today, so that you're aware of them and that these judges, um, so that you know who they are and the mistakes that they made. So. Judge Gregory Lenahan said that, quote, clearly a drunk can consent, end quote, and that he had no direct evidence on whether the passenger had consented to sexual activity. The ruling was followed by protests, a 37,000 signature petition, and 121 formal complaints to the Nova Scotia Judicial Council. So we just stop for a second. So what's the first thing you think when you get into the back of the cab? Right? Like, yeah. you probably just want to go home. <laughs> the yeah. fact that this was even considered an activity that a woman wanted to do in a cab with someone that she does not know mm-hmm. 
is just sh- yeah. anyway it's supposed to be a safe place right <sighs> take you home breathe move on okay sorry and <laughs> the so then there was um the nova scotia court of appeal called for a retrial the judge has since been cleared of any misconduct over this ruling by a two-man one-woman committee that was a made up of a judge a lawyer and a political science professor and then this one has been uh, in the news a lot um, and is local. So federal court justice Robin Cabin, Ca- Robin Camp um, had resigned from the bench after his actions during a 2014 sexual assault trial in which he told the complainant, a young woman, that, quote, pain and sex sometimes go together and asked why she didn't just keep her knees together. A Canadian Judicial Council hearing uh was held into his conduct, recommended that he be removed from the bench, and then he resigned, um, but not before he fought and tried to appeal and tried to have the council ruling overturned. And then as of May 2018, he has now been reinstated into the Law Society of Alberta. And the last example um, that we'll share with you on why this bill is so incredibly needed um, is in very recent memory, um, it made news all across the world, Um, But in 2016, in the U.S., Santa Clara County Superior Court Judge Aaron Persky sentenced rapist Brock Turner, who raped an unconscious woman outside a frat party in January 2015, um, to only six months in prison. So Judge Persky was then voted to be recalled from the bench because of this terrible decision. Um, But at the sentencing, the judge cited a reference um, that said he cited Oh, why should, you know, why should Brock Turner be punished for quote, 20 minutes of action? And he had also said a prison sentence would have such a severe impact on him. So, uh, Turner was released in the end after serving only half of his term after half of his prison sentence because of good behavior. So the sad thing is, is we could actually go on and on with stories like this, (laughs) but you know, time limits us but really it doesn't take much to to google some of these and realize that it's the same outcome over and over again where um the victims themselves the the impact of their (laughs) lives from this 20 minute of action of someone like mr turner um is not being taken into consideration so so a little bit of history canada's first Canada's first rape shield law, and it was enacted in 1982, and were and were designed to shield complainants from trial tactics that relied on rape myths. Those laws said that the sexual history of a complainant could only be used as evidence in narrow circumstances when the history is central to the accused's case. However, this law has been ignored and understood. And I'll admit, I never knew that this. Me either. Yeah, that this existed, this and it's no. definitely not being in use. Uh, and several scholars, notably Alan Craig of uh, Dalhousie University and Lise Gotel, 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 sorry if I say the name wrong, of the University of Alberta, uh, have identified this distance between what the rape shield law says and how it actually functions really as a judicial it is a justice gap. So in other words, despite rape shield rules on paper, the practice um, in practice, Canadian defense councils have been permitted to introduce evidence of sexual history for a misleading purpose. So just to bring it back full circle, um, the bill, Bill C-337, 
uh, is now dead. So this very important bill uh, that should have passed because all of our elected representatives in the House had passed it unanimously. It went to the unelected Senate where it died. Um, And the Senate's Legal and Constitutional Affairs Committee uh, was set to vote on the latest amendments for this bill last Monday, not yesterday, but last Monday evening. And, uh, and they didn't. Um, so they were unable to approve it. And then in theory, if they had approved, it would have gone back to the house for approval before then the house was able to break for summer, which was last week. So anyway, it has now been stalled. Um, well it's dead, but they, uh, but several political parties. So the liberals have said that they would like to reintroduce it, um, when the legislator legislative sits late fall, but we also have the fall election. So we shall see. But I believe um, Ambrose recently said that regardless of who comes into power, most groups have said that they would reintroduce. So mm-hmm. yeah. hopefully that's so hope. the case. <laughs> so the Senate had proposed several amendments to the bill to address concerns regarding judicial independence and create a perception of judicial bias in favor of victims. And the amendments included to drop the bill's requirements that all applicants for judicial posts undergo training in sexual assault law. Instead, all applicants would be required to commit to undergoing continual education in sexual assault law, which would be mandatory for only successful applicants. Number two um, was required that training courses be developed in consultation with any related groups, not just victims groups. And thirdly, drop a requirement that the Canadian Judicial Council publicize the names of judges who hear sexual assault cases without having taken the training. So to discuss this bill um, and the importance of this issue with us today, we have a a special guest. and so we are very pleased and excited to welcome Kristen Raworth to the podcast today. And thank you for being our first guest. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for having me. <laughs> so Kristen is a sexual violence survivor and advocate who uses her voice and experiences to speak to audiences about sexual violence and works towards changes in provincial and federal legislation to better support survivors. She has provided presentations to the Edmonton Huskies football team, various businesses, and was the spokesperson for the Government of Alberta's I Believe You campaign in 2017. Kristen helped organize a Beyond Me Too rally in March and is a founding member of Alberta Vanguard, an organization devoted to ending sexual harassment and assault in the service industry, as well as she's also a contributor to McLean's Magazine, Vice News, and has appeared on CBC's The National, Global, City TV, and CTV News. She's also a United Way community impact speaker and on the Capital Region United Way cabinet. So thank you so much for joining us, Kristen. (laughs) Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. So from a, so we'll just jump right in. So we have lots of questions, but from a uh, survivor's perspective, um, why is this bill so important and why does it matter so much? I mean, I think you covered some of it in terms of the impact that it has when a survivor actually goes to court, but it it starts well beyond that. And when you're talking about 90% of survivors who do not disclose and do not go go forward to the criminal justice system, they're looking at all of these cases and they're looking at what these judges are saying. And it's having an impact on not only their ability to disclose, but their ability to disclose to their family or to their friends, because it 
it's all about rape myths and they internalize rape myths and start thinking, you know, they did something wrong or this was their fault. And I've, I've had so many conversations with survivors who that's been one of the first things that they said, I should have done something more. I shouldn't have done this. And the first instinct for a lot of people after an incident of sexual violence is to take all the onus and blame onto yourself. And when you see judges and police officers and lawyers mimicking that language, then you're going to feel like that even stronger. Absolutely. It definitely, it puts the onus on the, the victim versus the actions of the perpetrator. Exactly. And so that makes it, again, it makes it much more difficult for people to have any face in the institutions that are designed to protect them, which makes it more difficult for them to, you know, get some sort of justice or closure or healing through the criminal justice system. And why do you think the Senate stalled the bill for over two years after it passed unanimously in the House? I mean, the first piece of that is that it is um, a private member's bill. So government bills do take precedence in the Senate. And this government had quite a few. Oh, sorry, we've lost you. Eight. Oh, sorry. Just we can hear you. Can you hear us? Yes. Okay, sorry. We just missed a little bit there. Just you mentioned how the liberals had quite a few bills that themselves were putting through. Yeah, just with, I find the focus on, uh, for example, C-69 and C-48, that took a lot of Senate time. So those kind of things, I think that's part of it. The second part is, like you said, the amendments. That was an issue for quite some time uh, that didn't actually get dealt with because they kept putting it off and putting it off, putting it off in terms of having it go to Justice Committee. It only went to Justice Committee, I believe, about a month ago. So there just wasn't a lot of will in the Senate, and there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of push to get this done. Wow. Huh. Okay, interesting. So what kind of um, larger impact could this bill have if, if it was successful? I mean, if it was successful, it's the first step. You know, it's the first step towards ensuring that federal judges are trained, that, that survivors are going forward to a judge that they know has a background in this and so that they are going to get a certain sense of equity in the courtroom that doesn't exist right now. But then that is the first step to ensuring potentially that we have provincial judges who are getting trained, that we're training our police officers, that we're training our RCMP officers. Right now, police officers and RCMP officers who are uniformed and don't specialize in sex crimes are not trained in sexual violence. So it's, 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 it's a first step towards a much broader change. Wow. And that I can imagine then in rural communities being even less so, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, you know, I think it's all in rural communities, it's especially all about relationships. So if that if the RCMP officer stationed in that community has a relationship with the sexual assault center, because there are a few uh, in smaller rural communities, then potentially they would be better, you know, trained or under, but there's no mandated training at this point. Hmm. And usually they send the new ones to the rural communities. So that also is a is an issue. So not only are they new, they're new officers, but they're new officers without any training. Right. Which it's quite surprising because I would say that there's training for other topics. Yeah, there's training for domestic violence. So within the Provincial Police Act, uh, we do mandate for domestic violence training. And within that, they are mandated to receive some form of training for sexual abuse as it relates to marriage. But that's it. There's no mandated overall sexual violence training. And given that 80 percent of all sexual violence occurs is acquaintance assault. Um, and that's where you do have a lot of those rape myths come into play. Then there's no mandated training for that. So you're, you're dealing with an officer who has likely no background in this topic whatsoever. 
Okay, no, that's good information to understand. And what kind of training was being proposed in the bill and why was it controversial? It was controversial um, and I fundamentally disagree with this. It, the idea was is that it would be training provided by experts in the field, so sexual assault centers and advocates, and potentially I think there was some talk of having survivors in there as well to talk about their experiences. But primarily, this is evidence-based training that sexual assault centers provide across the country as is. So that was sort of what they were looking at. And the issue was is they thought that would bias the court against the accused which is absolutely not the purpose in any way of this. It's, it's about creating equity in the courtroom. Uh, but that was the main concern was that by having experts in the field doing this, uh, that that would, you know, create a situation where the, where the perpetrator was not presumed innocent any longer, which is again, not the case. So you see that one of the amendments that they made was around the training in order to bring in other people as opposed other people to do some of the training and not just these subject matter experts. Hmm. It's funny. You would think you would want subject matter experts on. Yeah, yeah it's, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> exactly. But I think it's, it's that fundamental pushback that you have a lot when you talk about sexual violence is around, you know, the presumption of innocence and how do you support or, or ensure that the perpetrator isn't um, presumed to be guilty before they've even gone into court. That was even some of the pushback we got initially from the I Believe You campaign is if I say I believe you, does that mean I, I'm saying that this person is guilty? Hmm. And it's not about that. It's about supporting survivors and providing survivors with that support and creating equity for them in the criminal justice system, which doesn't currently exist. Right. I find that so interesting how they made that argument that it could undermine judicial independence. Yeah. Like they, they don't, and I like how you mention equity and you bring up equity a lot because, you know, what often is not understood is that, you know, every single person in our society has been kind of programmed with biases, right? By our dominant systems of culture, religion, race, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. And that these, you know, justice systems, like systems of big power and privilege, um, you know, reflect that. And that receiving this type of training would actually reduce these biases and make it more, um, would strengthen judicial independence. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I don't think as a society, we generally realize how ingrained rape myths are And it's not just men, it's not just, you know, people in more positions of privilege, women have ingrained rape myths within their brains as well. We all have it, I think, unless you've experienced it, unless it's something that is fundamentally uh, personal to you, there is a sense of, okay, what about your personal responsibility? What did you do there? Because you want to other that experience, you want to believe that it will never happen to you, it will never happen to somebody that you love. And you do that by relying on rape myths. And saying, okay, well, I would never go home with a guy I didn't know. I would never drink that much. I would never do this. I would never do So I'm safe. And that's, I think, very much where these myths come from, is a need to create a safety for ourselves. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, I know there's, there's powerful imaging uh, that's been out as of late showing, especially like the topic of well, what were you wearing? And when, when uh, groups show, well... <laughs> We can be wearing anything, yeah, <laughs> right. And and yeah, it's it's just one myth on top of another myth on top of. And I think it's almost like a, it's almost compiling, right? It's yep. compounding. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, has there been precedents for this type of bill before? 
Uh, there wasn't, but since the bill, from the time that the bill was int- was passed unanimously in the House to now, PEI has actually brought it in as provincial legislation. So that was actually, I believe, only six months ago. So there hasn't been any stats or any sort of report done on the first year of having that as a law. But that is the that's the provincial precedence now. Oh, excellent. And, and I think that's something important to mention here, that even if this law had passed, this would be at the federal level. But the point was, was that it was supposed to set a precedent so that others could follow suit. So I'm happy to hear that others are being leaders. And hopefully that also can encourage other provinces too. Yeah. And, and that's kind of one thing that's disappointing to me in terms of a, mi- a missed opportunity is had this been passed immediately after uh, it was passed in the House, you would, have set, you would have seen three or four provincial elections take place immediately after that. And you could have leveraged that as a potential. I mean, we do, we, we've, we've seen some really good uh, positions on sexual violence from some of the parties, but that could have been leveraged in Ontario, that could have been leveraged in BC, that could have been leveraged in Alberta as something to, to, to make a mandated platform promise from other parties. And what can we do going forward to ensure that the bill, when it is reintroduced in the fall, is more successful? Well, and you'd spoken earlier to, uh, in terms of whether or not there's federal support. So Rona Ambrose has spoken to the leaders of every federal party, and they have all promised to introduce it. Um, but what we need to do is engage every single person who comes to our door during the federal election and say that this matters to us. When we talk about why it didn't pass in the Senate, one of the things I didn't mention is really the lack of public will, the lack of public uh, outrage around this, the need to push your senators, push your MPs to make this something that matters. And everybody who comes to your door, you should say, what's your position on Bill 337? Is your party going to pass it? This is an important issue for me. And I think that's where we have struggled in terms of any kind of legislation on sexual violence, whether it's provincial or federal, is really getting an engaged public to talk about this and beyond preaching to the converted. So beyond people who, who traditionally would talk about this and traditionally have this as an issue, but get that to everybody so that anyone at every door is going to mention this as something that's important to them. That's excellent. Thank you. Why do you think there is this lack of public will and outrage on this? Is it lack of awareness of the bill or do you think it might be something deeper? Well, for this, it's twofold. It is lack of awareness. I mean, even for myself, it wasn't until about, I think, a year ago that I realized it hadn't passed. I mean, I just kind of thought it had. Mm -hmm. And then I was talking to someone who worked with Rona Ambrose and they're like, no, no, it hasn't passed. And I was just, I was blown away because it didn't make any sense to me why it wouldn't be. Uh, So that was it. I think once uh, the Canadian Women's Federation and Rona Ambrose and advocates started talking about it more, then you got you got more engagement from the general public because they realized it hadn't passed. Uh, But the other part is, yeah, is that, you know, a lot of people, sexual violence is not a comfortable topic, despite, you know, the Me Too movement, despite everything that's brought it up quite much more frequently. I think people are still uncomfortable having those conversations. And I think we still don't do the best job of engaging beyond, like I said, preaching to the converted. So getting people who don't usually have these conversations engaged in having these conversations so that they're also advocating on behalf of these issues. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Thank you. And it, like you mentioned before too, it was probably a bit overshadowed by Bill C-69 and C-48. Absolutely. And public in the media and everything because Rona is like, you know, a powerful advocate for this issue and she was pushing hard and, it just got over, yeah, overshadowed. And like you said, lack of public will. And, um, but with that, 
Um, we are reaching the optimal podcasting time. <laughs> so. There's an optimal podcast time. <laughs> we have learned this. Yes. Yeah. So about 30 <laughs> minutes average commute. Um, but thank you so much, Kristen, for thank joining you for having me. Yeah. And for sharing your expertise and your thoughts and your advice on this topic and on how we can um, amplify this uh, in mainstream media and in public discussions. Um, and uh, so key takeaways from today's episode include uh, believe survivors of sexual violence, advocate for the bill over the summer, capitalize on the momentum during the election, and when it's reintroduced in the House, um, contact your MP and contact your senator and in- ensure that it does not get stalled again. And recognize and think of ways to change these harmful biases that exist in our systems of power. So in our justice system and how these powerful institutions that were designed to make fair decisions were designed by people that are in, that were in positions of power and privilege and that are often comprised of those people in our dominant and most privileged demographic categories. So thank you so much for listening today. And we hope that you enjoyed our discussion, but we also hope that you will be engaged and, um, and we'll take the, the topic further uh, in a, whichever way that you can do that. And to support us, we would really love it if you would hit subscribe to our podcast so that we can track the number of listeners. And then you can be notified about upcoming episodes. And feel free to leave comments and send us messages uh, as we, so we can tail, tailor content uh, to help you with your interests. And also, if you could give us a five-star rating, that would really help because that would help <laughs> others find our podcast since we're just starting out. And what can you expect in upcoming episodes? You'll hear from leading tech companies, energy companies, entrepreneurs, government, and advocates across the EDI space. We'll share cutting-edge EDI technologies, programs, all littered with numerous best practices, tips, and tools throughout. We will also share commentary on the latest EDI and gender equality happenings with compelling interviews with women leaders and change makers in the EDI world. And a special thank you um, to the Alberta Women in Science Network for supporting us with this episode um, with the, some additional technology. Yes. <laughs> thank you, AWSN. <laughs> and thank you for joining us today. Don't forget to hit subscribe and let's continue the conversation. So until next time.